0: Section One of the Rover, Volume One, Number Six. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kate Fallis. The Rover, Volume One, Number Six, edited by Siva Smith and Lawrence Labry. Section One, Olivia De Castro. It is strange, and often lamentable, to consider the influence which public events have upon private fortunes. I do not now speak of the widows made by war, or of the other many and dreadful sufferings which that awful scourge inflicts upon humanity. The stream of the public destinies carries upon its bosom many a private shallop, sometimes aided by its current and adorned by its course of beauty but far more often after a long succession of perils, wrecked and utterly destroyed. Who but a soothsayer would have seen any connection between the fortunes of Herbert Maynell, the son of an English knight and dame, born and bred in England, and those of Donna Olivia de Castro— the daughter of a Spanish grandee, whose only emigrations had been between her father's old castle and his palace at Madrid, and yet these two persons fixed the fate of each other's lives. And what brought them together? The course of public events. Sir Herbert Maynell's father had been one of those gentlemen of knightly families who bought the hereditary knighthood, which James I constituted for pecuniary purposes, under the title of baronet. He was a favorite of the king, and his son was bred up very much about the person of Prince Charles. Sir Herbert was thus, at the period of his father's death, which happened about the year 1620, when he was about two and twenty years old, far from being the coarse, uninstructed, unmannerly bumpkin, which the mere country gentlemen of England almost universally were at that day. He had been bred about the court, and among the best even there. He had great natural advantages, and he cultivated them, whether of body or of mind, to the utmost. Accordingly, at the time he succeeded to the very large property of his father, another advantage, of the extent of which he was fully conscious, He was one of the most accomplished gallants of the court, in which he fixed his residence. Coming from the Midland, he had family connections with the Lord of the Ascendant, Buckingham, and, although not by office one of his retainers, he was constantly about his person, and was considered as one of his most favored followers. Accordingly, when that most extraordinary expedition, the Prince's Journey to Spain— was resolved on. Sir Herbert was singled out as one of the galaxy of noble persons who were to go direct to Spain and form the retinue of the prince during his residence at Madrid. Buckingham had originally wished that he should accompany them, but as their escort was limited to three, Sir Francis Coddington, Sir Richard Graham, and Endymion Porter, this was found to be impossible. He went out, however, with Lord Denby, Lord Kensington, Lord Cecil, Lord Howard, and the other young nobles who formed the court of the prince at Madrid. Never, perhaps, was more youth, beauty, wit, wealth, and rank congregated together than in this cortege. The Duke of Buckingham, whose eminence itself had originally arisen from his advantages of a person— was at this time in the very zenith of manhood, and an unparalleled course of continued success had added all the animation, buoyancy, and brilliancy, which are the usual attendants on good fortune. The young noblemen who had followed the prince to Madrid were the very elite of the court. They had been singled out with reference to their showy and imposing qualities, and though the prince himself already indicated that cold and reserved temper, which afterwards proved of so much detriment during the course of his ill-fated life, yet it could scarcely have been possible for Francis I— or Henri Quatre, to have gathered around him, a retinue more distinguished for grace, vivacity, and air de cour, but even among these Sir Herbert Manel stood prominent. He was, at this time, scarcely five-and-twenty, tall, graceful, and athletic in form, with the eye of a falcon, yet a smile soft, sweet, and penetrating, as that of a woman, bred too under the eye of Buckingham, with this model of courtly grace and gallantry constantly in view. No wonder that he had imbibed much of that exquisite manner, which even his enemies admit Buckingham to have possessed, and still less wonder that he should also have contracted some of those vices— which even his friends have never denied. Such was Sir Herbert Manel at the time that he arrived at the court of Spain, in person and outward manner. What he was in heart, the following narrative will probably show. It was in the month of May, 1628, that a bullfight was held at Madrid for the purpose of displaying this national exhibition to the Prince of Wales, splendidly as these shows were always got up, especially when honoured by the royal presence, the magnificence was redoubled on the present occasion, as may very naturally be supposed, and indeed if the object were to display to the English prince an exhibition of Spanish character, no means so well calculated for the purpose could have been chosen.' It went, indeed, a little farther than was intended, for all the points of that character that were displayed were not, perhaps quite, in consonance with the ideas of the prince. Certainly in those days a public bullfight might be considered as a condensation upon one spot of all the most prominent parts of the national disposition in Spain, the love of display Not the light, gay, and giddy feeling of the Frenchman, but more grave, more solid, I had almost said solemn, partaking, rather, of the nature of the tournament of old days than of the ballroom of modern times. With such feelings did the Spanish Cavaliers enter the arena, dressed splendidly, but rigidly nationally, and casting up their eyes to the galleries, loaded with beauty, which stretched around the enclosures above, await with proudly swelling hearts the signal which was to give them the opportunity of exhibiting their persons and their prowess to such fair beholders. The Englishmen themselves, however, were warmly interested by the fine and daring spectacle which was passing before their eyes, as for its being cruel also— Few people think the worst of any sport for that, even now, but then the very meaning of the term was not known by the great. Mainel alone saw but little of the fight, the bull made a splendid first rush, and as Sir Herbert was moving upward to get a fuller view of what would next happen, his eye lighted upon an object which put bull and cavaliers and metadors out of his head in an instant. It was a young lady of about eighteen. She was seated just outside the space enclosed for the court and its followers. Being a little in front where Manel had been standing, he had not observed her till, as he was moving forward, a part of his dress becoming hitched upon the rail, he turned back to disengage it, and then his eyes rested full upon the loveliest face, which till then... They had ever beheld. The English court was, in the reign of James I, undoubtedly remarkable for the degree of beauty which adorned it, but Mainel felt in an instant anything so lovely as this he had never seen. She was speaking at the moment when Mainel first caught sight of her and pointing out something in the arena to a lady who appeared to be her mother— the sweet, soft, and musical tone of her voice, the beauty of her lips as they moved in speaking, displayed from time to time the exquisite beauty within, the formation of the rounded and delicate arm as it was outstretched in the act of pointing, and, almost above all, the hand itself that pointed, the whole picture, in short, struck Manel with the keenest admiration and delight he stopped short, and after a few minutes drew near to the rail, and sat down within a few paces of this enchanting vision. Sir Herbert had undoubtedly been, to use a homely but expressive phrase, somewhat taken aback by the sudden view of a creature so inexpressibly lovely, but he was not a man to lose his self-possession, or at least not speedily to regain it even under such circumstances as these. He looked and looked again, to ascertain whether his first glance had deceived him. On the contrary, the more he gazed, the more he admired. His thoughts ran back to the memory of the English beauties whom he had wooed, but none could compare with this peerless Spaniard. He scanned at the peculiar points of her national beauty— and thought them so many ingredients of perfection. The ideas which Byron has since put into such beautiful verse filled his mind. How much hath Phoebus wooed in vain to spoil her cheek, which glows yet smoother from his amorous clutch, who round the north for paler dames would seek, how poor their forms appear, how languid, wan, and weak, Manel was not a man to let his admiration remain long unknown to its object. "'I will wait,' thought he, "'a little while for an opportunity to accost her, "'and if it does not occur I will make one.' "'It did occur, however, and that speedily. "'At first he was rather hampered by his difficulty in speaking Spanish.' and he complained of his being a poor Englishman, who had not been long enough in Spain to overcome his northern ignorance, in a manner which announced that he was one of the prince's suite, a fact which, as he well knew, was at that moment more likely to forward his suit with any lady in Madrid than if he had been a grande of the first class." but he did not yet know Olivia de Castro, or he would have felt how little impression such things as that made upon her mind. She relieved him, however, on the score of language by asking him whether he spoke French. "'My mother,' she added, looking toward her, "'is a Frenchwoman, and her language is consequently as familiar to me as my own.' At this Sir Herbert was delighted, for he fully felt the exceeding disadvantage of having so faulty a weapon as a language which he imperfectly understood. It is like fencing with one's left hand, said he to himself, Besides the chance of making some blunder so ridiculous as inevitably to cast a ridicule upon the speaker, anything but that— I could make head against, but if once the idea of ridicule falls upon a wooer, the die is cast, it is all in vain. The conversation now proceeded with animation. Donna Olivia was most curious about England and the English, their habits, their modes of thinking. And they are all heretics, she asked, crossing herself. By far the greatest part, answered Sir Herbert. But you see, he added, for he did not relish the tone in which she had spoken or the look by which she had accompanied it, you see that the animosities between Catholic and Protestant have all passed away. Here is our prince come over, like a knight of the olden time, to woo the king's fair sister, and the pope himself is about to give his sanction to their union. But still he is a heretic, said Donna Olivia thoughtfully, and almost as though thinking aloud. Ah, sits the wind in that quarter, said Sir Herbert to himself. It is hard, but I will trim my sails to meet it. He has been so bred, he added, our religion is instilled into us in our youth, before we have means of judgment. We Protestants indeed have license to investigate, and if in so doing we found we had been trained in the wrong, we should undoubtedly embrace the right. I indeed, Deed! exclaimed Donna Olivia, "'and her eyes flashed as she turned them upon Sir Herbert, "'as though to scan him minutely. "'Mainel avoided the glance, but he saw it full well, "'and thoroughly read its expression. "'I thought so,' he said within himself. "'That way lies my path, and may lead me far.' "'It was little more than a month after the scene at the fight that the waning moon as she shed her melancholy light upon the splendid garden of Don Guzman de Castro's palace shone upon two figures who were in one of its rich alcoves. The lady's head was drooped upon her bosom as she looked not toward her companion, who was leaning forward, and apparently speaking with great rapidity and earnestness. "'Is it not enough, Olivia?' he said that you have weaned me from the faith of my forefathers. Would you make me also untrue to my prince? No, our marriage must be secret, or it cannot be at all. If it were known that Sir Herbert Maynall, the follower and friend of Buckingham, was married to the Donna Olivia de Castro, there would, in this court of form and etiquette, be an end of the prince's negotiation at once. No, my love, he continued softening his voice as he spoke. "'Our union must be secret. A few months past, and I may own you to be mine in the face of the world, and carry you to my own country, where you will reign the queen of beauty in the court, and the mistress of my soul and heart and happiness in our home.' "'Then why not wait till then?' said Olivia in a low faltering tone, as though even when she asked it she was quite aware of the answer which her lover would make. "'Trifle not with me thus,' he exclaimed. "'You know that in three days I shall have left Spain. I cannot assign to the prince the real cause of my reluctance, and he has singled me out to bear letters to the king. I must go. And can I go?' without putting it beyond the reach of fate that you should be mine? Can I go and leave you to the constant solicitations of Don Guzman that you should marry the conda? How can I know how soon they may be turned into commands and enforced by every species of severity? And could you doubt my truth, though they were, said Olivia, turning her eyes full upon her lover's face, with a look that might have reassured the soul of Othello in his fiercest mood. But Maynall did not doubt. He knew full well that though she had tendered to her the throne of Spain and the Indies on the one hand, and that she were threatened with a dungeon on the other, the faith of Olivia de Castro, once plighted, would remain unbroken, assurance was not his object, for he would not have doubted if he had gone, and moreover he was not going, his journey to England was a fiction, invented to serve the very purpose to which he was applying it, for this crafty and corrupt courtier, this worthy pupil of his false and reckless master, Buckingham, heeded not the means, so the end were gained, nay, When the end was such as that for which he was now striving, it would truly have been cause for wonder if any means had seemed to him forbidden. "'Doubt, you dearest.' "'No,' he answered. "'Doubt never can cross my breast with regard to you, but I know not what they do in Spain. I know only that strange things, such as we hear not of in England, are done.' fathers here have power inordinate, and they scruple little how they use it. Dearest, you must be mine before I leave Madrid. If not, I cannot go in peace. If not, I cannot go at all. Yes, he continued, as though he were brought to a paroxysm of passion. I will forfeit all. Duty, country, friends, all oh, rather than leave you without having made you irrevocably mine, five short weeks before, and Olivia de Castro had never seen Herbert Mannell. He now was master of her whole soul. He had begun by letting her have hopes that he might be won from his heretic faith, and that thus a soul might be won for heaven with consummate art had he led her on and on by degrees feigning that his mind was more and more moved while he assured himself of the reality that hers was so. They met almost daily. The religious motive which Manel had, with the subtlety of the fiend given her wherewith to deceive herself, blinded her at first, but long before the conversion was completed, she felt that she loved Loved with that fierce intensity, that overflowing tenderness, that fixed unity with which a soul like hers could alone love. Let not the reader smile at the short time that sufficed to effect this. We all know, it is well if we have not experienced, that in some situations years are condensed into months, nay, weeks. Feelings which would be spread over the whole life of the cold and the cautious are often accumulated and compressed into one hour of intense sensation. When Maynall saw that the blow was stricken, that her mind and heart were his beyond the power of recall, he allowed the work of proselytism to go on more rapidly, and her full fervent confession of unrepressed, irrepressible love was made, as she believed, to a Catholic. Still she hesitated. Both the difficulties and duties of her position hampered her and it needed the feigned mission to England to hurry her into the fatal step of a private marriage. That once secured, Manel, of course, was no longer compelled to leave Spain. The almost delirium of joy with which she received the intelligence that he was to remain, touched for a moment the heart of this wicked and cruel man. For an instant, Remorse stung him to the quick, and as he pressed her to his bosom and fondly kissed her brow, the truth hovered on his lips. He was on the point of telling her all, but the habits of evil years proved too strong for the repentant impulse of one moment. He held his peace. It was within a few days after this that a painter was engaged to paint her portrait, Velazquez did not know who the lady was that came, secretly, to sit to him, but concluding it to appertain to one of the love adventures so common at Madrid, he was contented with having painted one of the loveliest faces that artist ever transferred to canvas, and made no inquiries. To suit some whim of menels, the lady was dressed in the Greek costume, a droll whim, thought Velazquez. But what was it to him, the painter? The lady wondered as much, but she was very gentle, very kind. Anything to gratify her husband, anything but become a heretic. For a certainty, she would rather have been painted in the costume of her own beloved country. And for a certainty, it would have been equally as picturesque. But men have sometimes strange notions. This was one of them. It is a head, thought the great master, worthy of being, and it shall be the finest that ever passed from my pencil. What a radiant creature! He exclaimed one day, as he stood gazing on the unfinished work at the hour he expected his sister. That brow, how noble! Those eyes! How beaming with the fire of youth and health, and with a keen, deep, and all pervading happiness also! How that spirit pervades the whole face and gives it life and brilliancy! This must be love, happily fortuned love! not else could shed such radiance upon such a countenance! Alas, how seldom is it thus! but so glorious a creature as this indeed deserves it. The expression of the eye was thus bright today, thought the painter, as he looked at the progress of the picture after the sitter was gone. I did not much perceive it at the time, but I copied closely, exactly, the impression that was there, and certainly the countenance is a little clouded. It may have been error, I may have gazed upon those eyes till, without a figure, they dazzled me, and the very beauty of their light may have prevented my rendering it. I will be very careful next time. He was so, but the diminished brightness was, this time, beyond doubt. It was distinctly perceptible as she sat, and still more so, in the portrait after she was gone." The character of this piece is altering visibly, thought Velasquez, as he closely examined the picture. This is not as it was. I had thought that I should have executed the most radiant countenance that my art has ever yet embodied, but this will not be so now. It is beautiful, most beautiful still, perhaps even more so than before, but it is saddened and subdued, "'Alas, it is not as wont. "'Love's brilliant morning has become clouded over ere noon. "'Pray heaven a storm do not supervene ere sunset.' "'And what could have changed the whole character "'of that speaking countenance in so short a time? "'What could have reduced that heart "'from the delicious thrill which accompanies accomplished love?' to the dreary and desolate sensation which wrings it when it first discovers that even that is vanity? Was it in the nature of man thus to wound a creature such as this, whose lofty soul had become softened, whose ardent affection had been kindled into a blaze for him? Yes, so, alas, it was, the cold-hearted, if not cold-blooded, follower of Buckingham, had already dashed the bloom from this fair flower, and it was drooping before his eyes. The gradations by which Donna Olivia's misery came upon her were very similar in kind with those through which her love had grown. Soon after their marriage, when the prize was won, when this lovely and gifted creature was irrevocably his, and his joys were lodged beyond the reach of fate. Sir Herbert began to tire of the constant and minute hypocrisy that was necessary to keep up in his wife the belief that he really had become a convert to the Catholic faith. The first time a doubt of this crossed her mind was probably the bitterest moment Olivia had undergone. Her religious feelings were such as, might be expected in a Spaniard of that age, with the addition that that Spaniard was a woman of the strongest feelings and passions, and that up to that period religion had been the only object they had to feed on, and even when that supreme and paramount passion, love, had taken possession of her breast, it had been, as it were, introduced by the agency of religion— Its progress had been accompanied by religious thoughts and anxieties, and its climax had been almost simultaneous with the completion of the conversion which had gone on with its gradations. She felt, too, that this was her work. She felt that she had saved the soul of the man whom she adored. What, then, must have been her agony, when first his manner made her doubt whether his proselytism were real, we in these days, and of the Protestant faith, can scarcely understand the degree of exclusiveness which Catholics then attached to their creed. He is a heretic, and therefore must be damned eternally. Such was the immediate and necessary conclusion to which every mind came, when once the to them awful fact was established that he was a heretic. As this doubt increased within Olivia's mind, her soul sickened, and her spirit drooped. The eternal salvation of him whom she loved almost as her own was in jeopardy, and as though this idea were not misery enough to crush her heart, she could not conceal from herself that he had played the hypocrite. And yet, no, she thought that cannot be. He is too noble, too honorable, too true. His love for me blinded his reason and carried him forward beyond the reality. He thought that he believed. It was his overwhelming passion that deceived him. But alas, she soon found that whatever that passion might have been, it now undoubtedly had no such violent influence upon his mind. He grew impatient and testy when she urged the subject of religion, and in his heat would say things which stabbed her to the heart's core, and lay there corroding it into torture, while he, light, careless, and cold, had forgotten he had ever so spoken. Indeed, as the prince's stay at Madrid drew toward an end, Sir Herbert's behavior changed so completely as to open the eyes of the unhappy Donna Olivia at last. He loves me no more. He never could have loved me. For Sir Herbert began to talk of the necessity of his accompanying the Duke of Buckingham on his return to England, and of the impracticality of Donna Olivia coming at the same time. It is strange, that though this wounded every feeling of her sensitive nature, yet lofty and even haughty in mind as she had always previously been, she did not display, under her lover's coolness, the slightest tinge of that fierceness and violence which women of such temperament usually show under ill requital. No, she was totally subdued, broken, she had staked all upon one cast and lost it, and her heart and hope and energy and fire were all gone at once. Sometimes, even yet, she could scarcely believe her misfortune to be real. Not love me? It's impossible. When I think, I on what he has said on this very spot, it is impossible— I have become gloomy and depressed on the score of his religion, and that has made me fearful about all else. Love me? Oh, yes, yes, it is impossible that he should not. And thus, by the repetition of the words, it is impossible, she strove to make herself believe it was so indeed." "'I will come to a full understanding this night about the English voyage. "'If I do not accompany him, I shall not live to see him return.' "'As she resolved, so she acted. "'She again implored him that he should take her with him. "'Impossible,' he said. "'The prince goes wifeless from your shores.' I am to sail in the same ship. It would seem a direct insult to his highness that I should take a Spanish wife in his company, as though to show that, though he could not strive in his wooing, I could. No, no, stay, Olivia, till the Infanta comes to England, and then avow our marriage, and come in her suite to join me. Alas, Herbert, that will never be— "'You must feel that this match will never take effect. "'He is as I said,' and she sighed heavily at the recollection, "'as I said to you the first day we met. "'He is a heretic, and they will never come together.' "'Accursed be the word,' said Manal, "'who had latterly always nettled "'when his wife touched upon the subject of religion.' Heretic though he be, the Infanta of Spain would be but too rejoiced if she could keep him in her nest, and Don Philip would resign the political point nearest to his heart to call the Prince of Wales his brother. Think you, then, they will break off the match on a point of faith? Be it so or not, Olivia answered sadly, almost solemnly. The match will be broken off, Therefore can I never accompany the Infanta to England. Herbert, I must go with you. What do you think, when this concealment preys upon me so heavily? Do you think I can support it when you are gone, when I have no longer these dear meetings to look to, to repay me for all I struggle through during the day? Do you think I could live? Olivia, Manel answered. This is wild and wicked talk. It is imperative upon me, under the circumstances in which I am placed, to go to England without you, but you may follow ere long, and to talk thus of the effect of an absence of a few months is, I repeat, but unwise and wrong. A few months! Alas, those months I shall never live to see in Spain! Herbert! Is it possible that you can be willing to leave me? Is it, oh God, is it true, as I have sometimes feared, and the thought has almost driven me to madness, that you wish it? Oh, no, 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 it cannot be. You will take me with you, Herbert, won't you? It is, I fear, but... Too true that, when love has once passed away, those endearments and strong appeals to feeling, which would, but some short time before, have thrilled through the very soul, even revolt him to whom they are addressed. He shrinks from them, to say the least, with a sensation of uneasiness and pain, and thus it was with Herbert Maynell, who answered his unhappy victim far more coldly than... Did not one know to what man's nature, under such circumstances, can reach, one would suppose to have been possible? At length Olivia became maddened. All the slumbering pride of her nature burst forth into action and life at once. False and transitory as the impulse was, it impassioned her whole being for the moment, and starting from the almost caressing posture in which she had hitherto been, sprang upon her feet and exclaimed, "'Then, sir, I will go with you. I am your wife, and you shall not leave me. If you are lost to all honor, humanity, and shame, I will go to your prince, and he shall hear my story.' "'He will tell me whether or no his presence forbids his followers to take with them their wives. "'He will tell me.' "'He will tell you, madam,' interrupted Manel, stung to fury in his turn "'by her threat of appealing to the prince, "'but compressing his rage into a sneer the devil himself might have envied as he spoke. "'He will tell you, madam, that you are not my wife.' He will tell you that I am already married in England. Olivia stood, as though stricken by the hand of heaven, motionless and speechless. But after the lapse of some seconds, a scream, dissonant and terrific, as is always the voice of human anguish, carried beyond the extremest pitch of human power to endure, burst from her, and she fell headlong upon the earth. It was the last sound that was ever uttered by her lips. End of Section 1